Cryoverge podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got D.A. Wallach on the show today. People may know D.A. from the world of music, but for listeners not familiar with him, who is he? So D.A. is a venture capitalist these days. As you said, Danny, he is a musician and acclaimed recording artist. I would tend to describe D.A. as a polymath. He has sort of wide-ranging interests. He has deep expertise across industries. As an undergrad at Harvard, his band Chester French was signed by... uh, Pharrell Williams, and he's toured with the likes of Lady Gaga, Weezer, and Blink-182. In 2011, though, DA stopped touring in order to focus on his other passion, which is investing. He has since built a parallel career as a venture capitalist backing technology companies like Spotify and SpaceX, among others. And in 2015, DA has since been focusing on investing in biotech and healthcare, He's invested in companies such as Beam Therapeutics, Doctor on Demand, Neuralink, and and many others. Most recently, DA launched a new $100 million venture fund called Time BioVentures, where he is a GP. So I am incredibly excited to talk to DA today about his professional journey, which is unique, to say the least, and what he's doing today with Time BioVentures. Where does Time BioVentures fit into the world of venture investing? Yeah, well, it's it's a new fund. So they have a number of portfolio companies already. Uh, I mentioned Neuralink being one of them. Uh, Kling Therapeutics is another one that I think they've been developing in-house. So I am really interested to hear DA's investment thesis for the fund. Uh, I'm curious to hear if they are going to invest in more traditional biotechnology companies, if they're going to be investing in more what has become known as tech bio, if there are specific industry verticals they focus on, if it's therapeutics or diagnostics or all of the above. So, you know, they, they say on their website that they tend to have a, a contrarian investment strategy. So I'm, I'm interested to talk to DA about, about what that strategy is. In a relatively short amount of time, his stature as an investor has really risen. What makes him such a compelling figure? Well, I, I think DA is incredibly thoughtful. He is a, a, a very curious person by nature. And so I think, you know, he has been able to get up to speed on healthcare and biotech incredibly fast, not having a, a, a background in the area. And so I think his intellectual rigor that he brings to the space has has made him pretty formidable and has, you know, allowed him to you know, raise this new fund along with Tim Wright, who is an industry veteran. Um, and so it seems like they have a pretty complementary skill set. But I think DA is just an incredibly thoughtful person and is just incredibly curious. On and, and I think those are attributes that make for a great investor. And what are you hoping to hear from him today? Yeah, well, I'm hoping to learn about his, his personal career journey, starting from his days uh, as a musician, that transition to being an investor first in tech, and then why he decided to make the move in, into healthcare and biotech. That's not often something you see. Um, and, you know, it's even rare, obviously, to see a musician make the, the leap into the, the VC world. So I'm really just curious about his personal journey. And then I'm really hoping to hear more about Time BioVentures, what their investment thesis is, the types of companies and entrepreneurs they're looking to back and, and invest in. And also, you know, what, what DA's vision is for the future, both 
sort of short term, let's call it three to five years. And then, you know, over the long term, you know, are there are there major advances that he's particularly excited about? If you're all set, I'm all set, Danny. Let's do it. DA, a big thanks for joining us. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while, so I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Oh, thanks. Nice to be here. So we are going to talk about your career path, which is a truly fascinating one, to say the least. Your evolution as a healthcare investor and your vision at your new fund, Time BioVentures, for the transformation of the healthcare industry. Before we start, though, DA, I've got to say, we've featured many people on the show who we consider to be rock stars, but you are the first bona fide rock star we've had on the show. <laughs> well, that might, might overstate it a little bit, but <laughs> I'll take I, it. I, I, I do want to start with your musical career, but I, I actually want to share a quick story. Not sure if you remember, but it's a quick story from how we first met, because to me, it provides... Great insight to what I would call your intellectual dynamic range and, and curiosity. So we were at a conference in San Diego. This was probably uh, six to eight years ago at this point. And you were a speaker on a panel along with a few other biotech, healthcare VCs, and some longtime healthcare industry vet veterans, right? people with 20 to 30 years of experience. And I was in the audience and, and truth be told, didn't recognize your name from your musical career. Uh, which probably says a whole lot more about me than than you. My my wife likes to make fun of me because I typically find myself stuck somewhere between Metallica and the Grateful Dead most of the time. <laughs> but anyway, before the, you know the panel kicked off, I thought, what in the world is a musician doing on this panel? And you know, I figured it may have been a publicity thing for the conference. But I got to say, I was dead wrong. You were by far the best person on that panel. You had the most thoughtful answers and asked the best questions. I, I was blown away with how knowledgeable you were. It was, it was really incredible. Oh, well, you, you are uh, far too generous. <laughs> well, I, and I, I've got to say, you know, just, just to put a nice bow on the story, you know, I got home from the conference. And so I, I of course, had to go download your newest album, The Time Machine, and, <laughs> and, and loved it. Right? It, it actually became my go-to for probably, probably like six months. And I still have a bunch of your songs on a couple of playlists. Uh, that I listen to regularly. So anyway, just want well, to share thank that. You. that thank context. you, Neil. I should, uh, I should come on your podcast every day. It's a good, uh, <laughs> good start to the day. No, I, I really appreciate you being here. So DA, let, let's jump into things. So you know, people may know you as the lead singer of the band Chester French. As a senior at Harvard, Pharrell Williams signed you uh, to his label. You entered the music industry at a time of enormous change because of pretty disruptive technology at that time. How did you view what was happening to the music industry from the artist's point of view? Well, at the time, I had one agenda, which was to try and make our band as successful as we could be. And so I think we took the industry as it was, which was, you know, as you point out, in considerable transition at that moment. Um, and I, I don't know that we felt you know, one way or another about that. It was just what we had to navigate. So to put a little context around it, we graduated from college in 2007. That's when we signed this record deal. And the industry that we were joining professionally, um, I mean, really as our first job, so to speak, was a shadow of its former self about, you know, maybe you know, 15, 20% of the size it had been in the mid nineties as measured by total revenues. And so there was a lot of um, 
fear among artists, a lot of uncertainty about, you know, what the future would be for musicians. And I think uh, we were very lucky to uh, have a, a pretty easy on-ramp um, in that, you know, we started by getting this big record deal. And um, in that respect, we were sort of coddled by having a major label behind us and meaningfully um, sized budgets to work with. So uh, we didn't bear the brunt of it, but we certainly experienced that it was a rapidly transforming business model. Um, and, you know, we, we tried to come up with creative ways to, um, to navigate that. And of course, at that time, there were things like Napster, right? But I think that the big, the big transition was really the advent of iTunes. Um, and so you really got to see, you know, close up the, the, the impact transformational technology had on the music business. You were, I believe, the first artist in residence at Spotify, where you're also an early investor. Did, did this experience give you any insight into harnessing technology to change an industry? Well, it, it did. Um, I think if you try to abstract uh, what happened into a kind of theoretical um, framing, the major forces at play there were unbundling. Uh, specifically, the album format was sort of dissolved into uh, a model where people could with uh, the download model, like through iTunes, buy individual songs instead of needing to buy an album. And then ultimately streaming, people have the ability to listen to songs instead of buying songs or buying an album. So that was one thing. Along with that, another force was this disintermediation of retailers. So the record store, as it had existed for a long time, became irrelevant um, and was replaced by digital retailers or digital platforms like iTunes and then Spotify. Um, and, you know, the benefit of all this was largely to the music fan, to the listener, because it went from a world where you had to spend $18 to buy an album that maybe only had one song you really wanted on it. Um, and you had to go to the record store to get that. And instead, we got a, a world now today where you can pull out your phone and listen to any piece of recorded music ever whenever you want. And you don't need to think about paying for it a la carte. Um, it's just a much better experience in so many ways for the consumer. So I think that taught me that, um, albeit, you know, capitalism is our system. Uh, it's the way it works is really that ultimately consumers get what they want. Um, so I don't know, consumerism is probably not the right term because that, that word's already taken, but there is some um, broader lesson there that I think as time goes on, um, end users in different industries ultimately should get a better experience, lower costs, more convenience uh, in our economy. Yeah, and, and DA, I'm curious how you've taken some of those lessons and have applied it to your current focus, which is investing. And so in, in 2011, you, you stopped touring to focus full-time on, on investing. Your early investments focused on, on technology. So I'm curious about some of the parallels between what you learned early in your music career and those changing industries, and if that applied to your technology investing. So maybe we can start there. And then I want to talk a little bit as you began to focus from technology to biotech and healthcare. But I'd love just to understand your, your sort of framework when you began your investing career full-time. 
Yeah, when I began my investing career full time, it was um, as a you know as a untrained investor, and so I benefit and suffer from being sort of self taught. Um, in that you know I never came up through jobs at um, other investment firms, so I, I was never sort of trained in the business in a in a typical way, and um, initially based on Spotify success, I, I very naively just thought, wow, you know, uh, this was really fun and not easy, but it was, it, it was sort of as simple as finding a company that I thought had a product people were going to go crazy over and recognizing the appeal of that product myself and then having the conviction to say, okay, let's, um, let's bet that other people are going to feel the same way about it that I do. So originally, that was how I approached things. I just went looking for other companies, other products that I uh, personally really resonated with. Um, and that took me into some really unusual and interesting businesses. I was a seed investor in an early cryptocurrency company called Ripple that's become a um, major player in, in that industry. Um, I invested in SpaceX uh, quite early. Um, and a company called, uh, at the time, Memphis Meats, now called Upside Foods, that's in the lab-grown meat space. So those are all very different businesses and very different industries. But what they had in common was that when I found out about them, I thought what they were doing was really remarkable, um, appealed to me personally, just as a consumer or a observer. And, um, and I you know, jumped in. Uh, I think over time, I've learned much more about what drives successful venture capital investing, and it's changed my perspective. But at the beginning, it was really that simple. So I, I, I want to put a pin in that. We'll come back to how your perspective has changed. I, I want to talk about your transition, which I believe began in 2015, where you really started to I almost exclusively focus on healthcare and biotech. Can you talk a little bit about what interests you in healthcare and biotech and why that transition? Yeah, sure. Um, the first investment I made in the healthcare industry was uh, in a company called Doctor on Demand that a friend of mine named Adam was starting. And I knew nothing about the healthcare business, but I did know Adam very well. And I thought he was a fantastic entrepreneur. And what drew him into starting a healthcare company was that he built other businesses in different industries and they'd been successful, but he felt like he didn't have this um, fulfillment that would come from impacting people in a deeper way. And so I think Adam's uh, migration into healthcare, similar to mine, it was this sense that um, some other types of businesses were economically very interesting, but sort of frivolous in a way relative to what's done in healthcare. It's just the healthcare industry uh, helps people, touches people at these incredibly vulnerable and important moments in our lives. And um, building businesses in the industry uh, is just sort of in inherently substantive. And um, and then as I started to learn more about the industry, I was frankly shocked at how technologically outdated it appeared. Um, and so that, you know, drew me in because I thought, wow, you know, I mean, as it 
as a venture investor, what more do you want than a um, massive set of markets where technology has not delivered to industry or to consumers um, what it should? Uh, you know, just the gap between the status quo and and what with existing technology seemed possible uh, struck me as enormous. Yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more. Obviously, you know, healthcare investing in general could be, and I don't particularly like this term, but could be considered impact investing, right? It, it's impacting all of our health at the end of the day. Uh, although I don't particularly like to use that terminology per se. But DA, I, I've heard you describe publicly, I believe it was on the Patrick O'Shaughnessy podcast a few years back, sort of a very personal story you had in terms of using some, you know, cutting edge biotech when you were starting a, a family. Do, do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, sure. Um, my uh, sadly uh, now late wife, Liz, had a genetic mutation uh, in a gene called MLH1 that predisposed her to a number of different cancers. Um, and this is a similar mutation to the mutation Angelina Jolie uh, was, you know, widely publicized for having uh, in, in BRCA. And so when we found out that Liz had this mutation and we were thinking about starting a family, we decided to use um, in vitro fertilization, IVF, because it would allow us to genetically screen embryos uh, and ensure that the child we would have uh, would be free of the mutation that Liz carried, which in theory would be present in about 50% uh, of her eggs. And so we did that. And um, our daughter, uh, who's now two and a half, um, does not have the mutation that Liz did. So it was an incredible personal experience with uh, preventive medicine, I'd say the ultimate type of preventive medicine where through this technology, we were able to ensure that this uh, disease was eradicated in our family. I mean, it, it, it's really kind of a, a, an amazing illustration of what we have available today. And India, I just, I want to say, you know, very sorry to hear about your wife's passing. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I, 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 we could go down sort of the CRISPR rabbit hole because I know you're an investor in in Beam you know, Therapeutics, and, and they're doing some genetic engineering and, and uh, some some gene therapy type approaches. Um, you know, there's a whole ethical framework about you know designer babies and things like that, which we're, we're not there yet, but you could sort of envision that future. Before we get into some of that stuff, though, you know, w w without having a scientific background yourself. How have you gotten yourself comfortable investing in healthcare and, and biotechnology in particular? Sure. You know, healthcare is, again, it's such a huge industry and there are so many subsectors within it. Um, but it does function as a integrated system in some sense. So you can distinguish between the pharmaceutical industry and the um, healthcare delivery system and the medical device industry and the pharmacy supply chain. Um, and that it makes sense um, to some degree, but I think investors benefit from, or policymakers as well, benefit from viewing it as this whole integrated system. So my ambition has been 
to try and build an understanding of the whole thing. And that, I think, involves navigating a lot of complexity, uh, both on the scientific front, which is required to understand the actual products that are used in medical practice, um, but also just as much uh, in understanding the system itself, because we've we've created a lot of man-made problems in healthcare. And the way that we deliver medicine, the way that we pay for medicine is extravagantly complex. So, I, you know, I've, I've just put a lot of time and energy into reading, talking to smart people, um, talking to folks who are on the front lines of healthcare to really try and understand the mechanics of care delivery and our payment system and stuff like that. And, um, you know, over time, it, it's like a patchwork quilt that you just progressively, you know, fill in the blanks on. And uh, that said, I feel like I'm, you know, you never stop learning in healthcare because it's so big and it's so complex. Um, and on the scientific front, you know, biology is endless. And um, even if you were to understand everything that people know today, which would be an impossible task in a lifetime, uh, what we don't know is much more than what we do. So we're always learning. And um, I think that's one thing that I find so fun about investing in this area is that there's always new learning to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think the, the the pace of innovation within healthcare and biotech is is unprecedented, I think. And, and we're moving faster now than we ever had in the past. Um, but I, I want to pull on on one of those threads, DA, in, in terms of, you know, talking to smart people and meeting the right folks and just sort of always learning. Obviously, one of those folks is Tim Wright, your co-founder and partner at Time BioVentures. So let, let's transition and talk a little bit about what you're doing at Time BioVentures. You recently announced the close of your first fund at $100 million. So big congratulations, by the way, on, on launching that. Um, how did you how did you connect with Tim Wright? Yeah, Tim and I met through a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Jim Schaefer, who maybe you've encountered. And um, Jim and Tim had been colleagues uh, at Caliber, which is a biotech spinout of Scripps Research. And I'd gotten to know Jim years ago. It turns out we're both from the same little town in Wisconsin. And uh, so I was thinking a few years ago that I really wanted to find a partner to start a firm with. And uh, Jim had the you know, foresight to uh, suggest him and just turned out that Tim was at a moment in his career where he'd uh, been thinking about getting into venture capital and uh, we were just a, a great fit. And let's let's talk about then your thesis at Time BioVentures. I believe on your website you state that you believe the life sciences revolution is the venture capital opportunity of our lifetimes. Can you describe why that why that is? Sure. Well, I think you've got a combination of um, enormous problems in healthcare that really demand solutions. Um, and those range from very prosaic problems like, you know, how do we do pre-approvals in a more efficient way um, up to societal problems like how do we avoid 
healthcare costs bankrupting our country to um, scientific problems like the unmet needs in so many of the diseases that today remain uh, without decisive treatments. So you start with this huge landscape of problems that are really big problems that need solving and that society you know, will spend a lot of um, wealth to solve if it can. Uh, so basically big market is the first one. And then you pair that up with what I think appears to be a genuine technology revolution that's taking place in molecular biology. Um, and the counterpart to that is what has happened in software and computing, which, uh, you know, again, to my earlier points, has not really uh, benefited the healthcare industry's efficiency in the way that it has many other sectors. So you've got, you know, to sort of simplify it, these three great attributes, which are um, a lot of technology that's already happened uh, in computing that has the potential to drive huge efficiencies um, and improvements in the quality of our healthcare system. This wave, you know, that's the first one. The second is this wave of new breakthroughs in molecular biology that, um, you know, promises over the next decade or two to um, produce solutions to a lot of big problems in biology and medicine. And then third, this enormous need. So when you put those all together, it's hard for me to imagine that huge companies aren't going to be started um, during the rest of my career. And if, you know, as I say, if you were investing in computing over the past 30 years, what did you, you know, what would have been the ultimate strategy? Well, you would have wanted to invest in Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Oracle and all these great enormous household names. And my bet is we're going to see companies like that built in the healthcare economy. And uh, our mission as a firm is to try and be there when they're started and, and try to, you know, be a part of those. So the, there, there's a number of threads that I, I want to sort of double click on, but let, let's start at sort of the 30,000 foot vantage point. Are there, are there specific industry verticals that you focus on or, or maybe said another way, are there, are there areas within healthcare that maybe you stay away from? We, at a high level, I think don't um, try to think of the industry in a vertical uh in a vertical paradigm. And part of the reason for that is that we think this is a moment of convergence where the silos between types of companies are, are breaking down and being blurred. And so we think that the Facebook of healthcare, the Google of healthcare, if those companies are started today, it's likely that they won't fit neatly into one of those boxes. Um, so you can imagine those kinds of hypothetical new companies doing things that involve healthcare information, um, but also uh, that incorporate uh, therapeutic development or diagnostics. 
Um, we look at the research tool space a lot, which itself is kind of inherently diagnostics, um, but then also instrumental to therapeutics development. So uh, the point I want to make is we think that it's helpful to take a sort of um, vertical agnostic mindset into healthcare investing today as we look for what might be these huge new companies. Does that make sense? It, it makes total sense. And I, I want to ask about th this, this idea of the convergence of technology with bio or with, with health, right? That's a major theme these days within the industry. And there's become even new nomenclature for this type of company, which I'm sure you've heard, right? Tech bio instead of biotech. Does, does, is, is a tech bio, is that the sort of archetype that you're looking for? Does that term even mean anything to you? And I'd, I'd be curious if, you know, you can think about how a tech bio company, some of the companies you're describing might be different than a traditional biotech company. Sure. Well, I think it's um, that term reflects the sort of East Coast, West Coast divide or the tech versus biotech VC um, cultures, basically, that has been used by folks who are coming out of a tech investing background, like me, who are increasingly investing in biotech. And their story is that computing is now fundamentally changing the way that biotech works. Um, I'm maybe a little skeptical of that thesis in that while we do see big opportunities for computers in drug discovery and diagnostics and some of these other areas, um, that's kind of table stakes. And I don't think that is lost on pure play biotech investors. Um, so we define ourselves much less on this continuum of tech bio versus biotech. And I'd say are much more rooted in healthcare. Um, we think of ourselves as healthcare investors because the market we're trying to address is the healthcare industry. And the way we're trying to address it is by finding companies that we think are gonna transform the way medicine works. And um, we're sort of impartial when it comes to how much uh, computers are involved in those companies. Uh, we certainly are conversant in computing and machine learning and uh, machine vision and any of these other technologies that are um, on the rise. But uh, at the end of the day, all that matters to us is whether companies have a really creative and promising way of addressing a huge problem in medicine. And um, that's, you know, that's kind of the bedrock of our strategy. Yeah, I, I like that, DA. I mean, I think that's a really great framing of it. Let, let's, let's talk about some of the things that, that you do look for specifically in, in, in companies. So you know, one of the things that you say you look for is this idea of an iconoclastic founder, right? I think a lot of investors would probably describe what they look for in terms of technology or a strong management team. What do you, what do you mean specifically by an iconoclastic founder? Sure. Uh, I'll go back to my claim that what we're looking for are uh, people who might build the next Google or Facebook. And those are very unusual entrepreneurs. They're few and far between. What they tend to have in common is that they're not in it for the money. They're in it for some other idiosyncratic personal motivation. And what 
is true of anyone who builds a business of that scale is that chances are along the way, they have to turn down opportunities to sell the business many times um, at what would be great outcomes for them personally or for their investors. So they're swinging for the fences. They're not just trying to get on base. And um, that's that's what we're looking for. We, we will back people who are doing things that are less crazy, um, but sensible and have huge potential benefit to patients. But what really gets us excited every morning is hoping that we're going to meet that next Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, d- d- definitely a, a different um, mental framework, I think, that some of those folks operate under. So I think that that's really, really exciting. Let's let's talk your book for a minute. Let, w- walk me through a few of your investments. Explain what led to making those investments. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll let you, I'll let you pick one or two to, you know, kick things off. Sure. Uh, you know, one we're very excited about is a company we just backed called Phantom Neuro. And what they're doing is developing a implantable electrode array that can go in the amputation stump of amputees. So think of a war veteran who's lost, um, their arm from the elbow down, for example, These patients today have at their disposal prosthetics that are relatively limited, don't allow you to have anywhere like the control that a uh, biological hand gives you. And so what Phantom Neuro aspires to do is develop this implantable electrode that can be surgically, you know, very simple outpatient procedure, surgically implanted in that patient's arm and thereby detect the nerve signals that would normally control their uh, forearm and hand. And through this, we believe it will be possible to give amputees um, lifelike control of prosthetic limbs and and next generation prosthetic limbs. So we think that's really a very promising area. It fits into this broader theme of so-called bioelectronic medicine that we're very excited about. We're also investors in Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's brain computer interface company. Um, They're doing something that uh, is arguably uh, riskier, more ambitious, uh, but also has huge potential, which is implanting um, sensors directly in the brains of patients um, to enable them to output information uh, with their mind directly and control things like a wheelchair uh, or type and communicate. So that's one area we're very excited about. We have another company that is sort of our, our pride and joy because we've been building it internally, and that's called Kling Biotherapeutics. And Kling is a antibody and antibody-derived drug development company. The premise of its approach is to take patients Um, either cancer patients or infectious disease patients who have had remarkable outcomes. So think of cancer patients who have received uh, treatment and then been cured and beat the odds. And what we do is we take those patients and screen their immune repertoires for B cells that they have naturally produced that may have been instrumental to their cure. And if we can find those, which we have now in many instances, 
we develop those um, antibodies as drugs that could be given to other patients. So I think it's such a beautiful idea that you could take patients who have been cured, whose own immune system has produced effectively drugs that aided their, um, their clearance of a disease, and then leverage that uh, for the benefit of other patients. So that's a, a second one we're very, very excited about. Yeah, that, that one's so cool. I mean, think about the just the entire premise of that. I mean, you're sort of accelerating what almost the process of natural selection, and you're accelerating that and harnessing that to bring it to you know, more folks, um, which is just, I think, such an elegant concept. Um, any other companies that you want to you mention? Otherwise, I want to move on and, and sort of shift gears. Yeah, let's move on. Okay, let's, um, let's talk about an essay that you wrote, I believe about two years ago, called The Paradox of Drug Pricing, which is oh man, <laughs> perhaps a somewhat esoteric topic, but it's a really important one, I think, for people to understand because so much of pricing within the healthcare industry and drug pricing is just totally misunderstood. And I, if, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of making a leap here, but I know you're also on the advisory board of No Patient Left Behind, an organization founded by Peter Kolchinsky from RA Capital that talks a lot about drug pricing. Uh, I've read a bunch of his stuff. Could you could you talk a little bit about sort of your essay and then your role with no patient left behind? Because I'm assuming there's probably some overlap there. Absolutely. Well, there is a broad public, uh, I'd say, um, demonization of the biotech and pharmaceutical industries, and. Um, most of that, in my view, is unwarranted. Of course, you know, all kinds of big companies uh, do bad things from time to time. But I'd say the public, um, and this is reinforced by politicians, is uh, delusional in its, um, in its perception of uh, some kind of a predatory uh, pricing model by the pharmaceutical industry. Now, you can forgive people for having this delusion because the way that we pay for medications and the prices of those medications are so difficult to understand. And what I tried to do with that essay, you know, which other people have tried to do as well, I'm not the only one who's ever tried to explain this, is make it really as simple as possible for people to um, understand you know, what is driving the prices of drugs. And when they go to the pharmacy, what the price that they pay is the product of. And it's the product of a very complex supply chain uh, that involves multiple intermediaries. And the bottom line is that the price um, that is often quoted in the media for a given drug tends to be the, the so-called retail price. And um, the retail price of a drug is very different from the, quote, net price, which is the actual cost uh, of that drug, the actual price received by a manufacturer like a pharma company after you account for the various rebates that are taken out of that price. So... Whereas um, you may hear about a drug that costs $2,000 a month, 
um, it could in fact turn out that the pharmaceutical company is only getting paid $500 or $600. And that is the effective real price of that drug. So no patient left behind as an organization is trying to create a greater public literacy of how this works, both among the general public and among policymakers. And the reason why I think it's really important um, for literacy around this issue to go up is that unintentionally, people trying to fix it can create disincentives that will reduce the amount of innovative drug development that takes place. So as an example, the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed this year has an unfortunate um, component that allows the government to negotiate the prices of small molecules uh, after nine years, whereas that only takes place after, I believe, 13 years for biologics. What this means practically is that every investor, every pharma company is now revising their financial models and as a result will ultimately invest less in developing small molecule drugs. Uh, because it is now going to be less economically rewarding to do so. Um, and so for folks who want cures to diseases like Alzheimer's that are probably going to require small molecules, um, we can shoot ourselves in the foot as a society by um, taking these sort of ham-handed uh, regulatory actions. And I think it's super important for anyone who cares about curing diseases uh, to, you know, try to approach this stuff um, with the nuance that it demands. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the the IRA was was I think really frustrating, but it was it's just very nuanced, right? And I, it, a lot of people just don't understand. I think the nuances that go into drug pricing and you know, healthcare in this country is just really different because you know the the the, the it's not the patient that's typically paying for the medication, right? It's insurance. So as consumers, we're, we're removed from this price transparency that we have in pretty much all other markets. So it really is sort of amorphous from the consumer standpoint. And as you point out, it, it, it is nuanced. It is hard to understand. But, you know, it's really important that groups like No Patient Left Behind have this sort of advocacy approach to educate more people. Because, as you said, the, the IRA, I think, was well-intended but does have and likely will have a dramatic impact on innovation in terms of R&D around small molecules, which ultimately impacts patients at the end of the day. And that, that is truly unfortunate. Um, That's exactly right. And what I, what I really like about what Peter has done with this NPLB group is put together a group of people um, who represent different stakeholders in the healthcare innovation system, venture capitalists, people from biotech, patients, um, you know, patients with rare diseases who really benefit from, um, you know, drugs that have on the surface very high price tags. So he's bringing through this group um, into the conversation, I think, a lot of diverse perspectives that are aligned around enhancing innovation um, and not you know, just 
advocating for you know a particular industrial um, stakeholder. Yeah, no, I think that's incredibly powerful. And and let, let's pick up on that last thread of innovation. DA, as, as you think about healthcare today, how do you see the potential for technology and innovation to change it over the next three to five years? And then, you know, if we were to put on our Star Trek suits and how do you think about innovation, let's say over the next 50 to 100 years? Sure. Well, none of this is uh, is going to be new to you uh, because I basically think the prevailing narratives in the industry are sort of correct. And those are uh, preventative medicine or preventive medicine is going to be increasingly the paradigm. Um, personalized medicine is going to increasingly be the paradigm. Uh, and maybe, you know, one, um, theme that I believe will play out here that is a little, um, heterodox is disintermediation. I think if we go back to the conversation about the record industry and the end of record stores, to me, the organizational model at the core of the American healthcare system remains the hospital. And my hope is that the hospital as the central player in our healthcare system uh, is going to be challenged in the next you know, 20 years. You see the beginnings of that with so-called direct-to-consumer providers like the telemedicine services. And that's, in fact, when I said I, my first investment was Doctor on Demand, that was the first thing I did was, was back a telemedicine company eight years ago. And that still is just getting started. So if you imagine by analogy to uh, the record business or the film business, that drugs and medical devices and diagnostics are kind of like the CDs. They're kind of like the music of the healthcare industry. Um, what does it look like if the record store goes away? You know, what, what would it mean for medical innovations to be much more directly distributed to patients? Um, and I think the answer to that question will involve a lot of new types of care delivery businesses. I think it will transform the distribution model of the pharmaceutical industry and diagnostics industries. And I think that's kind of the big vector uh, to keep an eye on over the next couple decades. Yeah, it's 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 sort of a fun thought experiment to to imagine. Da, I you know we could probably talk for another week about some of these topics. I do want to be cognizant of of your time. Uh, I have just one final question for you, uh, which I, I've got to ask. Do, do do you plan on recording any new albums in the near future? <laughs> <laughs> well, building a new investment firm is a uh, all consuming endeavor. So for the time being, we're just focused on trying to make our firm. Um, punch above its weight and, and do a great job for our investors and for the entrepreneurs we're backing. Um, once, once we feel like we're uh, on a steady state, maybe I'll take a couple of weeks and, uh, and make some music. I, I never get tired of writing songs. So um, it's always in the back of my head. Yeah. Well, certainly wish you the best of luck with, with, with the new, new firm. Um, DA, what is the best way for people to, to keep up with, with what you're up to? Absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, DA Wallach is my handle. 
And we try to keep our website for the firm pretty regularly uh, updated with um, our new investments or blog pieces or stuff like that. And that website is timebioventures.com. So um, people can follow me on Twitter, go to timebioventures.com. We're pretty easy to get a hold of. We've got a contact form right there. So anyone who's listening, who's got a great company or an idea for a great company or wants to otherwise collaborate with us, uh, you know, we would love to hear from. DA, with that, I would like to say a huge thank you for your time today and for joining me on the show. Neil, thank you so much. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a, a really wonderful and wide-ranging conversation with DA. I mean, you heard us start with his musical career, what was happening generally in the industry with you know, iTunes coming along and how that disrupted the, tra- the traditional sale of records and, and CDs at that time, and people could you know buy songs a la carte. And so I think you know DA seems to have taken some of those experiences and applied that to you know his his investing philosophy. You heard him say initially when he started investing, he invested in, in products that he as a consumer were really excited about, and I love that approach, right? I think that that that's a great way to start investing. And it's, it was really interesting to hear how he has moved over to healthcare and biotech. And, and you heard him say, you know, you know, health is, is, you know, obviously something that affects all of us, right? And so although we may not like the term impact investing, there's really no greater impact than we can have than, imp- than investing in the healthcare ecosystem and innovation. And so it sounds like DA sort of came to that conclusion. And so he's now exclusively focused on this sector because it does touch us all, it can have a major impact. And obviously there's, you know, major financial returns that can be had by investing in the right entrepreneurs and the, and the right companies and the right technologies within the sector. So you heard him mention, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's easy to sleep at night because you feel like you're investing in things can make a real difference in people's lives. How analogous do you think the technological transformation of the music industry is to the technological transformation of the life sciences or healthcare? Yeah, it's good. Good question, Danny. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly not an expert in in what what happened in the music industry. I think there are probably some parallels. I think you know we often hear you know what happened in the tech industry in terms of the explosion of the tools and infrastructure that enabled more tech startups to grow fast to iterate on their business models. You know, that, that all happened in sort of the early 2000s. You know, that type of infrastructure has now been and is being developed within the biotech and healthcare sector, where there's a lot more infrastructure that companies now can leverage. And so it's now faster and cheaper than ever before to start a healthcare and biotech company. So there's a lot of parallels to what happened in sort of the, the you know, the, the, the tech explosion in the early 2000s. You know, there, there's probably some other parallels you could draw in terms of what happened to the music business, but that's a little outside of my purview. So I'll, I'll leave that to others to think about. We've seen this incredible expansion of transformational technology in the life sciences and scientific advances come with that. As DA noted, though, we haven't really seen a payoff in terms of efficiencies as we have in other industries. Why is that? And is there a reason to believe that's going to change? Yeah, that's a, another really good question, Danny. I, you know, I, I think there there's an adoption curve, obviously. I mean, there are 
a lot of really game-changing technologies that have been developed. And, uh, you know, specifically you're thinking about cellular gene therapies, right? CAR-Ts were the first wave of these. Now we have gene therapies that are targeting, you know, rare genetic mutations that are curative in nature. These therapies tend to be very complex to manufacture and therefore have very high uh, prices. Now, those are also, they're either targeting oncology or, you know, they're targeting monogenic diseases. And so they're, they're very specific use cases. If you think about expanding the types of diseases and indications that those could be applied to, I think that's where we really see what could be possible with these types of novel therapies. Now, we need to figure out the manufacturing and supply chain and bring the cost down. And there's a lot of work to do on the on the technology side, not to just be able to edit a single nucleotide, but to be able to maybe make multiple edits for a particular disease. That's not a monogenic disease, but there's multiple mutations that are the underlying driver. So we're not quite there yet. But I think as we move in that direction, we're going to start seeing some of this technology have a much larger impact on a greater percentage of the population. DA and Time BioVentures have a big vision to invest in transformational technologies. How challenging is this to do as an early stage investor, or do you think it's easier to do it as such? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, w- I would not say any of this is easy. Right. I mean, I think the where the rubber meets the road is there's lots of innovative, big ideas out there. The key is pairing the innovative big idea with the right entrepreneur or the right management team to be able to execute on that vision. Right. So there's this idea of founder market fit. Um, So there's there's a lot of directions that could take. But you you heard us talk about this idea of the iconoclastic founder that time is is looking to invest in right so that's obviously one class of of pretty rare entrepreneur but there's a ton of founders that you heard da talk about maybe don't quite meet that bar but you know a lot of people supplement their skills or the gaps in their skills with a a team around them that could build you know hugely valuable businesses that can make a huge impact so yeah it's, it's really hard to identify this stuff i mean there's a lot of really promising technology but the key is well, how how do you execute on that vision and what are the steps to prove out the viability of that technology and that stuff in the biotech world can be very costly um, and so you need to think about what are those killer experiments you can do early on to determine if your thesis and your hypothesis works or doesn't work because you'd rather kill it early and move on than, than drag it out. Well, until next time. All right. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to bioverge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. 
Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioBridge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.